For those of you who are new, I'm Brad. I'm the lead pastor uh, at the River. I want to say uh, happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. I hope there's some time for you to rest, be with people uh, who are restorative people to you. I hope there's some time to um, read something by Dr. King that challenges and inspires you to live beyond yourself. Um, I uh, came across a poem that I wanted to read to you. Uh, I thought it was appropriate for the beginning of the new year. These are words from uh, the poet Mary Oliver. Uh, the short title is just Instructions for Living a Life. She said, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Now that's short and simple and it's the kind of poetry that I can get on board with because <laughs> it's not like, whoa, where are we going? But I think it's pretty profound. I think it's a pretty good recipe for mental health. I think it's a pretty good recipe for living a worthwhile life. I think it's uh, a recipe for anyone wherever they might be on their spiritual journey. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I think it has particular import that we would live our best life in the presence of God if we could be mindful of the God who is always mindful of us in every season. If we could be astonished, if we could be awake and open to the promise of mercies that are new for us every single morning. And that if we would tell about it, that one not necessarily intuitive, uh, some of us feel like, oh, gratitude, that, that, that gets closer to there, but tell about it, I think is tapping into the uh, spiritual truth articulated in numerous places that a shared joy is a double joy, that to share of our joy is to multiply our joy outside of us, to pass it on, but inside of us, to own and internalize that God has given something good to us. I had an example of that uh, in the last couple of weeks. It was uh, charming to me. Soon after Christmas was over, I was talking to a couple of kids. I think they were somewhere around 10 years old. I was asking them how their Christmas was, and uh, one of the kids just about jumped out of her skin and said, I got the best gift ever. <laughs> you know, I said, what did you get? And she said, I got a puppy. <laughs> you know, I got a puppy. And uh, she, she had more than double her joy. I mean, it, it was really sweet and wonderful. And I have to say, I don't even like dogs that much, you know? <laughs> but my joy was doubled as well in the presence of sharing with someone who felt like God had blessed them somehow. Their parents had blessed them and seen them. Today's message is focused upon the Christian vocation of telling about it of telling about the goodness of the God who has loved us and embraced us. Now, I don't know how you feel about that as I say it. I come today with an awareness that many of us feel a sense of challenge in our calling to tell about it, to tell about how greatly God has loved us. In our heads, it seems like the right thing to do, that of course, how could we not? God's been so good, that feels real. And in our hearts, so often it feels like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, that's like putting your head inside the lion's 
mouth. You know, what's the rule we live by? Don't talk about politics or religion lest you enter into flaming fires of intensity. Some of us doubt, I think, that to tell of our joy could increase joy. And the intention and prayer of this message is to help us to move through and beyond that, that we would know the promise from Jesus that our joy would be complete and that no one could take it away. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the scripture. God, however life is going for us, whether well or ill, it is our desire to know complete joy, your joy, joy that's full. So I pray that for my friends in this place, some of us going through some pretty hard things, some of us in seasons of excitement, open our hearts to your joy, whisper uh, truth to our hearts that anchors us in stormy times. We are listening for your voice. And all God's people said amen. 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 Remember the story of the Magi, the mysterious figures from the Far East that came to bring gifts, treasures to the feet of Jesus, to Mary and Joseph. Remember uh, that they were outsiders. They were Israel's ancient enemies. They were from oppressor nations. And yet, the story of salvation is that these magi are on a spiritual quest. Even people who are other, even people who are from an unjust nation, have a deep hunger in their souls. It's what it means to be human. If we think about it long enough, we will see that their spiritual hunger is so great that it launches them upon a journey to be uh, traveling in the wintertime through the desert in the Middle East would not have been a comfortable thing. There were no Airbnbs along the way that they could get reviews for. It would have been a dangerous experience. It's quite likely that they were risking their lives. So they went anyways because their hunger was so deep and God not only saw and felt the hunger of her heart, their hearts, but he was leading them every step along the way. Now, that story is an uncomfortable story for the ancient Jews because many of them would have felt like we don't want those people in our story. That story exists in the nativity to stretch our hearts. God is saying to all of us, God is saying to his people, I want your heart to reflect my large heart for a world of people who you oftentimes do not understand. Now, it might have been tempting for the faithful Jew to have thought about that story and thought, okay, like in a world of lousy people from the East, there are a few good magi. There are a tiny percentage, these three or four or how many there might have been. But that is not the ancient story. The ancient prophecy tells us that these magi, whether they were three or more, they are simply the first of many to come, that God is drawing the nations to himself. And he's calling his people to believe and to partner with him. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, is the wellspring from which the story of the Magi comes. The prophecy says this to God's people. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
for darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Now, if you remember that story of the Magi, that sounds an awful lot like the star of Jesus moving along and stopping over Bethlehem. It says in verse 3, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now, this is kind of like big poetic language, so let me speak to it. The prophet is telling God's people about the reality of darkness, that the darkness of sin engulfs the earth. Thousands of years later, for as much as we have progressed, many things going much better now than they were then. But it doesn't take very long in reading the news to come to grips with the fact that darkness covers the earth, thick darkness engulfing the peoples. The prophet is telling us that in the midst of that kind of darkness, God in mercy has sent his light to our particular people, to the Jews. Not just the light of an idea of wisdom, not just the light of the law, although that's how they might have taken it, but ultimately he has sent the light of his very presence in the person of Christ that there might be a people who live in the presence of the fullness of light. And that's good news to us, but it's not the end of the story. This prophecy is saying that this people who embody, who live in, who enjoy, who delight in the light of God's presence are to be a light to the world, and that God is at work in the world drawing people from all over the earth, these formerly oppressive nations, to come and see and learn about what this light is all about. And the question of God's people throughout the centuries has always been, will we pay any attention to those people whom God is drawing? Will we receive them or will we turn away? There is much at stake here. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, the last verse of this text that I will read, the prophet says, you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. So again, uh, big poetic imagery but the image that the prophet is painting for us is that light is dawning in the darkness, that God's people in the light of God's presence see ships coming toward them. This is sort of a PTSD moment for them because throughout their history, for centuries and centuries, ships have come up to port in Israel to attack Israel. Nations with stronger war technologies come to overwhelm them, to steal their wealth, to steal their people and drag them away to be slaves in other nations. But that's not what's happening in this prophecy. Isaiah is saying by the Spirit of God that there is a time that is coming when the ships that are coming to you are coming with the wealth of the nations. And that is fulfilled 
in part with these magi who come with gold and frankincense and myrrh, not to steal life, but to give life. And the question for all of God's people today is who do we want to be like in the midst of a world in which God is drawing all kinds of people to himself? The New Testament story is that there are two answers to that question. We could walk in the way of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who embodied a spirit of fear and judgment. That's how they received uh, unclean peoples, by seeing everything that was wrong with those people and by separating themselves as much as possible, lest we be made unclean by them. Do we want to walk in that way, or will we walk in the way of Christ? Which, if you are a reader of the New Testament, and so many of you are, you know that the way of Christ is to see beneath the uncleanness, to see beneath even the oppression, to see beneath the traitorous identity of a tax collector, to see underneath all of those things the deep spiritual longing in the life of someone, to be present to it and to speak truth to it. That is the calling of all of God's people. And that is our calling as a church community. We have no identity apart from that identity, to be a people who are attentive to the heart cry of people around us who do not know even what their heart cry is. That is our identity. And Isaiah 65 says that when we fulfill that identity, when we live in that calling, we will be radiant, that our hearts will thrill and rejoice, that the longing for joy that we have in trying to accumulate things or go on this trip or that trip or have the device or the next technology, all, all the things that we think we need in order to make our hearts fill full, that joy comes to us when we play the role that God has given us in the story of bringing the nations to himself. Now, again, I'm aware that we have uh, many anxieties in playing that role in what can feel like contested space, a secular world that feels hostile to religious sorts of things. Let me just name what some of those uh, barriers might be, and then I would like to take some time and try to solve them ultimately for us. But just so that you know that I'm not out of touch and that I feel them myself, uh, I, I know that many of us feel anxious when it comes to the idea of speaking of Jesus in a context where not everyone shares your faith in Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you feel it the other way around. You don't have faith in Jesus and you wonder, am I accepted here? But from the perspective of a person who is a church-going soul, some of us just feel anxious. We don't feel like it's going to work. I have a friend um, whose father uh, in another country uh, was a renowned evangelist. An evangelist is just someone whose primary gift it is to speak of the matters of faith to people who don't understand faith. And people who have an evangelistic gift, uh, it works for them. You know, whatever they say, it seems like it kind of works. And my friend's father is such a gifted evangelist that uh, people in his community uh, call him one-a-day Ray because uh, he pretty much leads one person a day to Christ. 
You know, he just, everywhere he goes, it seems like the door is open and he can say whatever he wants and it seems like people are interested in what he has to say and he can be forthright and people aren't offended and it just works for him. That's what it means to have an evangelistic gift. And I want to say here today, even in the midst of talking about anxiety, that while I'm aware of anxiety in our community, I also have faith that God has planted in our own community people who have the gifting or the anointing, they say, as one-a-day Ray. So if you are one-a-day Ray or one-a-day Faye or <laughs> whomever, uh, we celebrate you. Or if there's someone in your group of friends who is, I don't know, it might not be one-a-day, but one-a-week, one-a-month Ray, uh, encourage them and let them know that you're so glad for their gift. But many of us here uh, feel like the son of one-a-day Ray, my friend, you know, the son of one-a-day Ray. We just feel small and feel like our gift is, is so paltry that it's not even worth offering. My friend feels that way, and I always want to come alongside him and say, don't, don't minimize your gift. You know, he lives such an incredibly beautiful life. He, you know, as a child with multiple disabilities, and his love for that child is so incredibly tender, kind, and sacrificial, and uh, he has a story that only he can tell. So to those of us who have some anxiety, who feel like our gift is small, I simply want to say, do not minimize your unique gift. Every one of us has a gift to offer. Uh, some of us have allergies uh, to evangelism. Any, any of us have allergies outside of evangelism, just like physical allergies? You, know, you start itching, your eyes start to water. Some of you may be feeling that here. It's like, oh, he's telling us we need to talk to our friends. And it's like, <laughs> I just, just, need, just need a Benadryl. The ushers will, be, ushers will be passing out a Benadryl along with the communion cup to you today uh, to calm your anxieties. But so many of us feel like we've been in context. It's like we're largely like well-intended people here. We'd like to do a good thing. And so we go to places to get trained on how to do this. But we always feel like we need to become someone that we're not really. You know, so it's like uh, maybe you feel like you need to be an extrovert to do this. And you're introverted. And we all know that, you know, Silicon Valley, I think, has more introverts than extroverts. And so we have a picture that you have to be an extrovert. It just feels like you're just going to kill. You're just going to squeeze the juice out of me. Uh, so some of you feel like you need to be an extrovert, or you need to be a debater, and you're a, a peace-loving soul, or you need to be a salesperson, and you're more of a technology, you're not in sales, you know. Or some of you have been in spiritual communities that have done things that feel like they kind of have a high cringe factor, you know. It's like, ew, <laughs> like, please don't make me be part of a, I like this community before, now you're doing things that feel kind of yucky and coercive and manipulative. So I just want to restate our value. If you've been through River 101, we often talk about authenticity, that we are trying to be ourselves here. We're trying to be transparent, but we're trying to be transparently ourselves here. And you don't need to be anything more than you are. Uh, and we are going to disavow all the coercive, manipulative models. That's not what we will ever do here. Some of us have allergies, and some of us feel simply hopeless. We're mired in hopelessness. You know, uh, if you are a reader of history, you know that hundreds of years ago, it would have been nearly impossible not to believe in God. Not everyone was a Christian, but a couple of hundred years ago, it was like 
the world it was like a spiritual enchanted place. And today it feels like the opposite of that. Like with like the scientific method and our preoccupation with things that are measurable and predictable, the idea that the world is an enchanted place and there might be angels and demons and uh, invisible things at play. Uh, even Christians have a hard time believing that these days. There's an author I like named Jonathan Merritt. He wrote, uh, recently wrote a book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And his book is about how it is that in the English language in America, that sacred words are vanishing, that sacred words are being used less and less uh, out there, just in the literature, where you know how Google counts words and that sort of thing. And he's done research that just sort of corresponds with, it's like, even Christians are not having spiritual conversations hardly ever outside of the realm of safe places in the church because we feel hopeless that those words could land, that they could have an impact, that they might be transformative for someone. And I feel that hopelessness sometimes, maybe you do as well, but I simply want us to see as clearly as we possibly can today that hopelessness is a grave spiritual condition. We may feel hopeless, but hopelessness is a situation that we need to get to the ER as quickly as possible. We need to find an intervention to treat our hopelessness because the moment we've lost our hope, well, that's the beginning of the end, isn't it? For us for our community, our, our household, our small groups as a church, to be without hope in the world is an awful thing. So let me take a moment and say some words about just reviving hope. Two things that are the beginning of the process of how I hope our hope can be revived. One is to recognize that throughout history, God has used ordinary people to advance the kingdom of God. Ordinary people. The early church uh, when Christ died and was raised from the dead, was tiny. And researchers think the church grew uh, from the time of Christ's death to the next 250 years from 5,000 to 5 million. 5,000 to 5 million in 250 years through a people who had almost no social power, no social standing, very little education, no political power, no technology, just the Spirit of God at work in the world, God at work revealing himself. You might remember that Paul said that to, to the Corinthians, hey, not many of you were wise, not many of you were influential, not many of you were very important people. It's like, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you know, I feel so encouraged. But Paul was saying to them, God was pleased to use your smallness to let his greatness be made known. So that is like the most basic idea that God uses ordinary people. But beyond that, for those of us who need one more piece, let me say this, that while our broader culture is an interesting and still hostile place to the idea of Christianity, thoughtful people see signs that the cultural tide is shifting. I think this is very interesting. About 20 years ago, there arose a handful of prominent atheists 
in Great Britain. Some of you might know names like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, the new atheist movement who were trying to destroy the foundations of the life of faith uh, by force of science and reason. And one of the interesting things is that there is a lot that's been written uh, in recent years about how many of the most prominent new atheists are reconsidering their perspective. If you're in the church, you're familiar with the idea of deconstruction, you know, Christians that are doubting their own faith. And that is happening, and that's real, and there are reasons for it, and we need to go through that process. But the same thing is happening in the atheist world. There are atheists that are doubting their atheist faith at the very center of the movement, some reconsidering the possibility that the Christian worldview as a worldview might be necessary for them, some of them fully embracing the love of Christ. Brian Zahn, a Christian pastor in Missouri, uh, some of you read his devotional in December, he commented on this change in this way. He said, humans are inherently religious. We are beings bent on worship. The curious project in modernity to be non-religious has utterly failed. It's left us empty and adrift, desperately foisting our religious impulses upon endeavors and ideologies unworthy of our inherently religious devotion. He's saying that there's so much about modernity that was trying to squeeze the life out of our religious nature, and he's saying that that is ultimately impossible. It's just channeled our religious desires and fervors in a different direction into fascination with things like UFOs, that there certainly must be something else out there. Or some people in the United States have channeled their religious fervor into the political sphere. It's why it is that the polarization is almost intractable. That it's like, it's like a crusading you know, jihad in the political sphere. I wonder... Brian Zond and other people are saying is, can, can we tune in to the spiritual hunger and thirst that is there and to that conversation that is happening in so many places in the atheist world? In some literature that I will tell you about at the end of the service, I read about the conversion of a man named Paul Kingsnorth. I want to share a little bit about his story with you. Just going to encourage my heart. I hope it will encourage yours as well. He's a British writer and an environmentalist today. Uh, living in Ireland, I believe. <clears throat> like many people, he grew up in a Christian home, and then when he became an adolescent, he rejected that faith. He felt like he was smarter than that. He imagined himself to be a young Richard Dawkins, the new atheist. But that didn't actually last very long for him, because Paul Kingsnorth, as a literary sort of person, found himself most drawn to literature that had magic in it. Uh, fantasy, uh, supernatural realities, ghosts and magic. And the atheist story is that there is none of that. We are just chemicals and cells. And so Paul Kingsnorth turned to Zen Buddhism, and he valued the deep inner peace that he discovered and found that to be real for a season of time. But then he found himself longing not merely for deep inner peace, but beyond that deep inner peace, he found in himself a longing for something beyond himself, something even to worship. And so he joined a Wiccan coven. Uh, that's like uh, people practicing witchcraft. And he enjoyed aspects of that because Wiccans believe that nature is charged with something magical. 
that there were things that were missing in that as well, and so he became involved in the, the environmental movement until he found out that political movements all over the world can turn well-intentioned people into tyrants, that we need a savior larger than ourselves. He does ultimately become a follower of Jesus. And let me read to you his own narration of something that was going on for him. I find this very fascinating. He said, I have started having very strange experiences. I started having very strange experiences that are difficult to describe. I was having dreams and meeting Christians every five minutes. I used to run a writing school, and suddenly I had vicars. That's sort of a, a Christian priest. I had vicars asking me to read their sermons and give them feedback. People I had known for years suddenly told me they were Christians, and I hadn't known that. I felt like I was being hunted by Jesus. <laughs> I love that. We people of faith could say, oh, yeah, he, he's hunting you with the arrows of love and mercy, right? He says, this was not the plan. He means this is not my plan, but it was happening to me. If I listened to this sort of thing five years ago, I would have thought it was absurd. The love of God broke through into Paul Kingsnorth's life. And to his own surprise, he discovered that the presence of Christ was his heart's deepest longing. He didn't become one of those spiritual, not religious people. He became an orthodox Christian. He belonged to like the oldest branch, the most formal branch of the church. And I find it very interesting how his conversion unfolded. There are no celebrities in this story, no brilliant people, no people with PhDs that like hammer-locked him into necessarily believing this. They're just regular people who were faithfully transparent to their story. And in that, God present to him. I wonder if we as a community could embrace the fact that every day God is sending Paul King's Norths into our life. And I wonder if you and I could at least try on the hat that all the things that seem funky in other people's lives, their addictions, their, uh, to us, weird spiritual pathways, their language, even the things that we find immoral, are somehow part of their expression of spiritual hunger, an attempt to name a spiritual desire that they do not have the language to name. And that that is why you and I are there in their lives. It is not our role in that space to become a debater, unless that's really what God has given you to do. And it's not our role to be a salesperson in that space, not technically anyways. Our role is to be fully present and then to be God's witness, just like the people in Paul King's North's life. Some of them just said, oh, I'm a Christian, you know, and that was enough. That was, that was a link in the chain. A link in the chain. Whether we play our role in the story of God, Isaiah chapter 60 tells us, will say much about the extent to which we experience joy in the Christian life. To play our role is to have our hearts be thrilled with the thrill of God in embracing his lost ones. And as we embark upon the adventure that is 2024, I want to invite us and challenge us to do that with flaming deep hope in our hearts. Let me pray for us. I want to invite the worship team to come. Maybe as I pray, 
you could let yourself in the presence of the Holy Spirit become aware of some faces that are part of your circle of concern. People in your life, people in your life whom God loves and longs to embrace. And he has sent them to you. What would it mean for you to be present to their longing? What would it mean for you gently and faithfully to be transparent about the greatest gifts that you have received in life? Lord, it's our longing to embody all of your character, your righteousness, your justice, and today, your faithful love for people who are searching and cannot even name the deep longing of their hearts. Some of us are in very busy seasons of our lives. We have little kids or challenges or problems at work. Our lives are overfull, and yet there's someone that you've placed in our path. Help us to take the moments that we have and to offer the loaves and fish of our transparent story that you would multiply it, that people would be blessed, that the name of Jesus would be honored, and that our joy would be manifold. Lord, we worship you today. We enter into your presence in the name of Jesus. Amen.